Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Skywatcher What's Up webcast. And this week we're going to be doing a really, really basic setup on telescopes, essentially. And we're going to go over just telescopes 101 and how we can kind of look for certain aspects and learn about different designs. And this is really catering to people who are just getting into the hobby. And you might very well know a lot of what we're doing today, and that's okay. And we can use it as a refresher. And But we're going to take a look at basic telescope designs and kind of what to look for in a telescope when we're um, out either finding our first telescope or setting up for a secondary telescope. So let's get started and we're gonna see, um, check out some cool stuff today. So thanks again for joining us and let's get going. So there's a lot of options out there when you're choosing a telescope and there's many, many different designs and all kinds of things that you can choose when either buying your first telescope or maybe you are doing something uh, for your second telescope. There's so many different options nowadays and there's a lot of cool things that we can we can do. So uh, this is something a lot every single one of us go through um, but we're gonna take a look at what options are out uh, this let me fix something here for you guys. Here we go. Okay, um, there's a lot that we can actually pick from out on the market today. So let's take a look at what we've got and what we can actually uh, learn today. So if you're new to telescopes, uh, there's some basic terminology that um, you're gonna want to know when you're buying a telescope. And it really helps um, knowing these things so you can kind of choose what's going to work best for you. So the first one of these is aperture. And aperture refers to the diameter of the main optic lens or mirror that's on your telescope. And this is what we all look for because aperture has um, a couple key things in mind for us. So the larger the aperture, the more surface area that we have on the mirror or lens, and that allows us to collect more light. The bigger that telescope, the more light that's going in there, you're going to get uh, brighter images and more detailed images, and it's going to allow us to see those little faint fuzzies that we want to see um, out there. Maybe hide myself here. Um, little fainter things, higher resolved uh, things that we want to see out there. And that's going to give it on brighter objects, we're going to have higher resolution, which allows us to see uh, more detail. So the big things with aperture is the bigger the telescope, the more I can see because it's collecting more light. So the fainter the object you can see and also the higher resolution you have so if you're looking at like the moon or the planets or something like that the more aperture is going to give you that resolving power uh, to be seen uh, those fine little details that you can see on the bright objects like the moon now aperture works not by the diameter of the telescope but actually works in the surface area so just for some examples to see here uh, a four inch telescope or a hundred millimeter diameter telescope actually has 50 square inches of light gathering power. And a six inch has 113 square inches, an eight inch 201, and 10 inch 314, and so on and so forth. So if you were to compare these, a six inch has 225% more light gathering power than a four inch does. So that's huge. So you're able to get a lot more punch into the nighttime sky with a six inch telescope than a four inch. Um, then as things start to go up in size, that, that jump becomes less and less. Um, 
gain, but that still can be substantial. As you can see from a six inch to an eight inch, you're at 78%. So that's like three, almost three quarters, a little over three quarters, the light gathering power that you can have. A 10 inch is 56% more than an eight inch. So those are big jumps. Now, once you get probably about 12 inch, um, you have to go, the jumps have to be more substantial. So in order to get that 100% jump, you, you have to go quite substantially bigger. Um, these smaller jumps like you see here, four, six, eight, ten, 10, um, those are really large jumps. But you know, if you're going from a 10 inch and you wanna to go to something that's got some serious dig into the nighttime sky, uh, you're gonna to wanna to look at like a 16 inch to get you know, some substantial uh, light gathering capability on there. Um, so it does start to plateau as you go bigger. Uh, so, but when you're looking for a telescope, um, you wanna find something that's gonna give you enough light gathering power to make things interesting, but it needs to be small enough to where you wanna go out and use it because if it's too big, you're never gonna use it and you kinda just, there's no, no real advantage to any of that if you're not gonna use the telescope you paid for because the best telescope is the one that you use the most. And there's a lot of people that will tell you that um, because it's true. And that's something that every single one of us want. We wanna be able to go out there and enjoy our telescope. Now, let's... Now the next thing besides aperture you wanna pay attention to on your telescope is focal length. And focal length is the distance from the main lens or mirror um, to the focus point. And normally on your telescope, there's like a sticker on there that says, you know, D equals or diameter or aperture equals, you know, 200 millimeter or eight inch. And then it'll say focal length uh, equals like 1200 millimeter or something like that. That's pretty common. Uh, but the focal length is the distance the light travels um, from the main optic to the focus point. The longer the focal length, the narrower the field of view is gonna be for that telescope, and the shorter it is, the wider it's gonna be. Uh, and when you're doing visual observations, uh, or even higher magnification stuff, um, longer focal length is gonna give you more magnification um, on the object. Uh, so a 600 millimeter focal length versus a 1200 millimeter, the 1200 millimeter is gonna give you more image scale on your object than the 600 millimeter will. Now, now we have the two of the three things that we wanna know. We have aperture and focal length. The next one is F-ratio. And F-ratio is important. Um, it's more of something that if you're doing astrophotography that you're probably gonna pay attention to. Um, this refers to how fast an optic brings light to um, a focus. Now fast is just kind of a, a term. It's not you know faster in any particular speed. Um, but when we're talking optics, this is generally what's used. So um, an F ratio is the focal length divided by the aperture. So like if we have a 1200 millimeter focal length and a 200 millimeter aperture, that's about F6 is what that comes out to. So and you'll see this on your telescope as well. If you go to buy it, you'll see the F ratio listed like F4, F7, F10, what have you. They're all over the place, um, depending on the optical system. So the shorter the F ratio, or the smaller that number is. So if you see a telescope that says F4, that's a fairly fast telescope. Um, if you have a longer focal length telescope, or uh, longer, larger, uh, slower is the term actually, F ratio like F10, uh, then it's gonna take longer to expose if you're doing photography. So most photography, astrophotography telescopes tend to be faster. Um, so you can actually collect that data a lot quicker and that is less demanding on the mount. You don't have to guide as much. Um, so faster telescopes are generally more uh, desired when it comes to imaging. Um, most visual telescopes, you can get away with pretty much uh, anything. And um, 
it just really comes down to what exactly you want to do and we'll go into the designs um, here in a minute and kind of explain the advantages of all this but when you're buying a telescope these are the three main things that you're looking at aperture focal length and f ratio um, and they're going to give you a variety of different things um, aperture is going to give you that dig into the nighttime sky allowing you to see fainter things focal length is going to give you the image scale and then f ratio if you're doing photography that's important um, for visual it's not so much a big deal um, but it's still helpful to know but very helpful in photographic use so now there are lots of telescope designs out there and this is where we get a lot of questions from people is which telescope is right for me and to be honest um it really depends on you and what exactly um that you want to do so we'll go ahead and pick that so, uh dustin yeah f ratio and fee and focal length can all dictate the field of view um if you're coming from photography, things get kind of flipped around as far as like aperture and focal length go. So um, it it can it's a little different when it comes to telescopes. So if you're doing photographic stuff, yes, f f ratio. So if you have an f4, it's going to give you a wider field of view than an f7. But all that's dictated along the focal length of the optic. And then of course, when we're talking cameras, it all depends on how big the sensor is so if you have a smaller sensor your focal your field of view is going to be smaller than if you have say a full frame camera full frame is going to give you much more real estate so they're all kind of intertwined uh, together they're all equally important um, it just depends on the application that you're doing okay so basic telescope designs there are three major ones that we all see and we're going to cover some of the uh, other designs that sit within here but this just gives is kind of a basic run through of the different types of telescopes the first one and one that all of us are really familiar with is the refractor which uses lenses at the front and focuses the light uh, second is compound or cassegrain. Um, there's a lot of uh, different uh, designs and telescopes that sit within this uh, selection. And then, of course, we have reflector, which mainly uses mirrors. Um, and compound and reflector, if you had a Venn diagram with two circles, they cover almost 80% of each other. Uh, they're just, there's so many designs and they can kind of be variable um, depending on what we're looking for we're going to cover that so um, I'm sure people will argue how we organized it but we did our best today to make sure this was as uh, understandable as possible so let's take a look at the first set of uh, what we have to go off of so the first one of course is refractors and refractors are exactly that they bend light or refract light and they do this by using lenses and there's a variety of different types of refractors and we're going to check that out um, as we break it up in a minute um, but if you're new to telescopes um, what i find helpful is breaking down what we're talking about on the telescope so if you're a beginner um, this right here will be rather helpful just so you don't call up and be like you know the doohickey because uh, that happens a lot it's you know they you don't know the correct terminology and that's okay if you're just starting out so it's good to get acquainted with your systems um, so first is the objective lens which sits up at the front and this is for all refractors then we have the dovetail uh, this is for mounting to some of the mounts that are out today you have the mounting rings which allow the tube to be mounted to the dovetail the finder scope and the focuser and pretty much every refractor on the market is going to follow this uh, basic set for the most part so it's good to just become acquainted with what things are on your telescope so if you need help or you want to trade something out or use some accessories it's best to become acquainted with what we're actually using and it becomes very very helpful to the dealer or the vendor if you have questions on uh, what to refer to so like we said earlier refractors use lenses to focus light to a point 
and the most it's generally the most common design for beginner telescopes and they come in a variety of sizes from you know 50 millimeter to 150 millimeter but you can get them a lot bigger than that um, larger than 150 millimeter they are produced but they're very difficult to make and source the the glass for it and they become very very expensive so you don't see them as much they do exist and if you want one there are several companies that will make them for you but you're be prepared to pay a fair amount of money for something that big now there are two major types of refractors um, and we're gonna break that down here in just a second uh, so the first one which is the most common one especially if you're a, a beginner is called an achromatic telescope or achromatic refractor now an achromat uh, uses two elements in its objective lens and they're generally separated by air um, and these work really well they provide those beautiful sharp images uh, very detailed uh, the problem with an achromatic refractor is it doesn't focus all the colors to the same point so your red green and blue don't focus to the same position um, and this is not the end of the world uh, but it does give you aberrations known as chromatic aberration if you've ever used like a lens during the day like a telescope or binoculars or a telephoto lens and you've zoomed in and you've seen this blue or purple fringing around bright high contrast uh, areas that's chromatic aberration and that's due to the lenses not having the ability to correct the uh, focus position of the blue light so this is more of a cosmetic uh, issue some people find it annoying some people don't um, but in order to correct this there you can use uh, filters which work okay um, they don't really do the best job but they can help get rid of that uh, chromatic aberration but uh, there are other ways that we can do this and that's what we'll be discussing here in a second so this is achromatic um, which works quite well um, and also when it comes to chromatic aberration the shorter the focal length or the faster the telescope is the worse the chromatic aberration gets so let's say we have two telescopes that are four inches or 100 millimeter in aperture one of them's f10 so it's slower and the other one's f5 the f10 is going to be fairly clean we're not going to have the same field of view that the the f5 is but the the image is going to be a, a bit more corrected as far as color aberration goes where the f5 is going to give us a wider field of view but if we go to look at the moon we're going to have this huge blue halo on the edge of it so that's an issue with chromatic or achromatic refractors so just going over that again they're generally composed of two elements in their objective there's no really exotic glass used um, some designs might to to mitigate that chromatic aberration a little bit but for the most part nothing exotic uh, they do suffer from chromatic aberration which is the main issue with them they're good for visual work but not necessarily astrophotography because the cameras are very sensitive and they're going to pick up on that uh, chromatic aberration and you're going to get this wildly blue fringe around a lot of your bright stars so the cameras are going to pick that up so you could do it but and you and you can get some nice images out of it but if you're using a color camera um, it's gonna see that those halos real quick the second type of refractor is known as an apochromatic refractor and these get a little bit more exotic and they come in a couple different flavors um, the first one is known as an ED doublet and we'll get to the definition of that here in a second um, in ED doublet apochromatic refractor uses two lens elements but the one of the two elements is known as uh, an ED element or extra low dispersion um, which is a very special there's a variety of glass types out there but this secondary element helps correct that chromatic aberration and reduces all that blue fringing for the most part now with ED doublets um, they have to have a little longer focal length um, in order to get that corrective uh, color correction so if you've got like one of our evo star doublets the ed doublets those are ed apochromatic refractors 
um, and compared to some other of our refractor models, they're a little longer in focal length, but this helps with the correction. Um, so you don't have any of that blue fringing, or if you do, it's probably at high power and it's pretty well mitigated um, for such a telescope. So going over that again, composed of two elements. Uh, one of the elements, generally the rear element, is the ED or extra low dispersion. You can also use fluorite crystal which is very, very difficult, very expensive, because you have to grow the crystal. So you literally have to grow your lens and then figure it. And fluorite is very difficult to work with. It can be very brittle. So um, it's expensive to get something like that. You don't see it too often anymore. Um, and the companies that are doing it, it's a lot of money. Um, the use of the ED element helps correct the color aberration. So it gives you that real nice clean image and generally requires a little longer focal length to help get that. So most ED doublet refractors, um, let's say 80 millimeter, are somewhere between F6 to F7. Um, and then as you go bigger, you know, usually F7 is where ED doublets are, and that's to help get that color correction under control. Now, what if we wanted to go faster? What if we wanted a faster focal length telescope but we still wanted that refractor quality, but we want it to be faster and still well corrected. Well, that's the next type. Um, oh, the doublets are very good for visual work and also for astrophotography. Um, so, like I said, what if we wanted to go faster? What if we wanted something that was well color corrected? We wanted it to be a refractor and it needs to be uh, short. And that's where an, another design comes in. This is known as an ED triplet. And you've probably seen this a lot if you're, if you're new or if you've been around for a little bit. Um, this is an ED triplet apochromatic refractor. These telescopes have three elements in their objective lens, thus the name triplet. Generally, the center element of this objective is the ED element. And then it has an, a third element on the back that's usually just a basic glass but because it has the ED element paired with another element, you're able to control that color aberration a lot better. And you can do that in faster telescopes. So you can get these refractors that are like F5 and they have a 100 millimeter aperture and they're very, very well corrected on that. Um, so, and these, uh, the ED triplet refractors are generally air-spaced, but you can also get them oil-spaced from some manufacturers, which can be helpful. Um, it just it adds a little complication to the design, but that's also another way um, that they can be done is you're air-spaced or oil-spaced. Um, both of them work well. It just, there's different ways of doing it. Uh, the end off. Uh, the only reducer that really works uh, is designed for the Esprit's was made by Star Arizona at the moment, and that's called the Apex ED reducer. It's a 0.65x reducer, and that reduces the 100 to f3.6. Um, so if you want to know about that, you'd have to talk with Star Arizona on that. There's some other ones that would probably work, but that's the only one that's designed to work. Uh, going back to the triplets, so they're generally composed of three elements. Uh, they can use, uh, they use one ED element, but some of them will actually use two ED elements, but you're going to pay for it. Uh, Takahashi does that with their TOA series. Uh, the TOA 130 and the TOA 150 uh, use two ED elements, but they're extremely, they're beautiful, beautiful telescopes, but they're very expensive. So um, if you have a chance to use one, do it. Uh, the use of the ED glass and the rear element helps with that color correction so we can make faster refractors and still have them color corrected. And then we can uh, use those really good for visual. They're excellent for visual, but they're also good for astro. They're very, very good for astrophotography. Now, the last type of apochromatic is the multiple elements. And the there is a wide variety of designs, but we're not going to go through every single one of them. Um, they look a lot like this. So some of them uh, have like a two element design. This is known as a Petzbull design. Um, you can have a doublet in the front and a doublet lens in the back. You can use multiple ED elements. You can have, I've seen triplets in the front and singles in the back. So there's 
a lot of different ways that you can make these multiple element refractors and these are generally used for uh, really large format cameras and imaging um, so if you want to use those full frame cameras or bigger um, there's several types of refractors like this on the market that allow that correction um, these get really complicated and they have to be very well built because you need to maintain the alignment of all that optics now some advantages for the refractor design uh, they can be compact if you've got the small ones like the 80s maybe the hundreds they're very small um, so they're easy to, to throw out on a mount you don't need a very big mount um, but they're they're easy to throw out they're easy to use and travel with uh, refractors are very low maintenance there's no real optical alignment that you need to do also known as collimation you don't really have to mess with anything just throw it on the mount and use it so refractors are very very good with not needing any kind of maintenance uh, like I said, straightforward to use, easy. Uh, the optical stuff, they're very high contrast. They give you these needle sharp stars, um, little pinpoints. So you see a lot of people, it's like it's a refractor like view. Um, so everyone generally refers back to having a nice refractor. Um, and they can be used for wide, low power with a low eyepiece, or you can zoom it up to high power if you want. Uh, they can also really be easily adapted to for photographic use. So if you want to get into astrophotography or you know in the future that you want to get into astrophotography, a refractor would really be a good place to start because it would really give you a good springboard or platform to build your imaging system off in the future. So if you want to do photography and you know you want to do it when you start, a refractor would probably be good to start uh, think about because it's gonna make your life a lot easier. Uh, they're also really good for visual, lunar, planetary, and can be used for wide field, deep sky, but they are limited on their aperture. Uh, some of the disadvantages of a refractor, uh, they can be really long and bulky on the big ones. So if you're getting up to that five inch, 130 millimeter aperture size, they, they can get big and they can get long and difficult to move around. Not on all of them, but on a good, uh, it's something to think about. Uh, the longer tubes, like our EvoStar 6-inch, or 150, or our Esprit 150, they're several feet long, and they need a mount that has the ability to, to throw that moment arm on that tube around the sky, so you're going to need a bigger mount. Um, optically, they can suffer from chromatic aberration if you have an acromat, and if you want to get the higher-end ED models, they can be really expensive for their aperture sizes. Um, for example, like uh, an Acromat 70 millimeter, it's probably like 200 bucks. Our EvoStar 72 ED, which is an ED doublet, they're almost $500 for just the tube. And that's, that's something to think about. Uh, they can be limited on their aperture sizes unless you want to drop a mint and go bigger. Um, but generally 150 millimeter is the largest refractor you'll commonly see. Um, and they can be limited on deep sky work because of their aperture size. So a six inch is a good size, but it's a big telescope. It can be long and it can be expensive depending on if you go with an apochromatic version. Uh, the next up is reflectors. And this one, there's a lot to it, um, but we're gonna kind of keep this simple. So. Reflectors use mirrors instead of lenses and generally seen on a Dobsonian mount. Um, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of different designs for reflectors, but we're going to focus on the main one. So most of the time you see this as a daub, what you see here on the right hand side. And the nice thing about Dobsonians is they come in a wide variety of aperture sizes. Most of the mass produced stuff is between 5 inch and 16 inch. Um, and there's a lot of sizes in between, you know, for Skywatcher, we make a five inch, a six inch, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16. Those are just our common sizes, but you can go bigger. Um, you know, we make 18s and 20s, but then there's some custom shops that will go up to 25. Um, and if you really want to go hardcore, you can get up to, really the sky's the limit with a reflector. If you want to pay for it, you know, I've, I've used, uh, Newtonian Dobsonian telescopes up to 42 inch and it's awesome but 
they're big. Um, so the main one we're going to talk about in reflectors is uh, a Newtonian. This is the most common one. And a Newtonian looks like this. So you have a, a primary mirror that's generally parabolic and a flat mirror that the light is then focused on and it's focused out to the side of the tube where the focuser is. Um, that's a common Newtonian design. And just to show the, the hardware layout on a Newtonian, we have the finder scope, the focuser, the dovetail if you're mounting it. This is just a regular Newtonian tube. Um, if it's a Dobsonian, it's not going to have the dovetail or mounting rings. It's going to have some mounting blocks on the side of the tube to fit into the base. Um, but you're still going to have the focuser on the side and the finder up at the top. And then, of course, you have your primary mirror cell at the back. And that's just some of the basic hardware found on a, a Newtonian. A Dobsonian, for those that don't know, is a Newtonian. It's just on a Dobsonian-style mount. So like I said, this is generally composed of two mirrors. It has a parabolic primary and a flat secondary. Uh, these can suffer from an optical aberration known as coma, where the stars at the outer edge are look like little comets. This can be corrected using some correctors. Uh, it's called a coma corrector. And the faster the F ratio on a Newtonian, so like we said before, the F ratio, so the faster it is, the more coma will be visible in a Newtonian. So if we have an F8, the coma is pretty, pretty well handled at F8. But if we have an F4, the coma is very apparent. And if you have some of these newer designs that are like F3, um, the coma is all over the place, but there are correctors um, that can go out there and be installed and get rid of that and give you a really, really pleasing image. Um, my my Dobsonian, my big, I have a 28 inch f3.3 and it needs a coma corrector to give that really, really nice corrected field. Um, but if But if you're looking at the mass produced telescopes, they're generally between f6 and f uh, 4.5, I think, is our 16-inch model. That's, I don't know that you'd really need a coma corrector. Um, if you're at f4, I'd recommend one. f4.5, it's kind of on the, the limb there, but it's really personal preference. So, but that's something you can always add. Uh, the nice thing about Newtonians is they give you the biggest bang for the buck. So you can get an 8-inch telescope for like three or $400. Um, so it's never been better to get started. And that aperture, that, that big aperture that this is gonna give you is gonna let you see really faint galaxies and the moon and all the details on the planets is gonna be awesome. So something to think about um, if you're looking for it. Uh, some advantages to the Newtonian design. Um, they can easily, they can be easily used in the Dobsonian format. Like you see here, this is our little heritage Tabletop Dob, it's a five inch. It's a cute little telescope to get started. They're like 200 bucks. Um, smaller models can be easy to transport. Um, they give you the most bang for the buck uh, as far as aperture goes. So if you've got $200, you can probably go out and buy an 80 millimeter Acromat on kind of a wobbly mount, or you could go buy the, the five inch Heritage that you see right here, the Heritage 130, and you get a five inch telescope, which is gonna give you a lot more light gathering power. So something to think about. Uh, they, Newtonians don't have any chromatic aberration because they're not refracting the light, they're just reflecting it. So all the colors come together. There's no color aberration on a Newtonian. They also have faster F ratios. Most Newtonians are about F5. Um, for the most part. Um, so that's going to be really good for photographic use. Now, disadvantages on a Newtonian. Something to think about. Larger models can be really difficult to move around. They do get big and they do get bulky. Uh, Newtonians do require optical alignment um, sometimes for every use. Uh, this is called collimation. It's not something you should be scared of. Um, it's something that can easily be done. It only takes a minute or two once you got your hands down on it. I mean, there are lasers and tools you can use 
um, to do that. So they do generally require collimation. Um, a good Dobsonian or good Newtonian will hold it for a while, but every now and again they have to be adjusted. And they can be harder to transport because of their size. So that's something to think about when you're going big with a, a Dob or a Newtonian. Optically, uh, the large ones can be more expensive. That's kind of obvious. As you go bigger, the price goes up too. Uh, if you want to use these for terrestrial viewing, like ships or birds or anything like that, Newtonians are not the way to go. Um, because of the way, because it uses mirrors, everything is mirror flipped or upside down. Now, when you're looking up in space, that's not really the end of the world because there's not any kind of orientation. But um, I've had people try to use these as spotting scopes, really high power ones, and it it's not the best. Um, it, your image is going to be upside down. So great for astronomy, not for terrestrial. And then, of course, faster optics are going to show coma, that, that comet effect out at the edge of the field of view. And you can get correctors for that, but you're going to, you have to factor that into the price. So if... If you're gonna get a 16 inch, you're probably gonna pay a couple thousand dollars for it. The corrector is gonna be, you know, somewhere between three and $500 for the most part. So it's something to think about. Um, if you've got some of the smaller telescopes, like our 12 inch, uh, that's an F4.9, our 10 inch is 4.7, and our eight inch is 5.9, you probably won't need a coma corrector for those. Um, they generally hand, you'll see that coma, but it, I. I don't find it to be annoying, but again, that's really personal preference. Now, the last of the three major designs is compound and cassegrains, um, and there's a wide variety of different designs, and a lot of these may act, can actually spill over into the reflector side of of it too, because they just use mirrors. But because of how it works, um, I've thrown them in here. Uh, so compound telescopes generally use mirrors, but they also uh, can incorporate lenses into the design. And there's a wide range of different uh, designs in this category um, for various applications and uses. So uh, there's so many of them. We don't. We can't even. We don't have the time to cover. We could do a whole presentation on just Cassegrains and the variations. Now, Cassegrains can come in a, like I said, a massive amount of designs. Most of the professional telescopes now in observatories, those big ones, they're generally a Cassegrain design. Um, they use mirrors and they have all kinds of optics inside of them, but they're generally a compound design. Uh, these range in size, um, amateur-wise, these in our market, is 3.5, so about 90 millimeter to, I've seen them as big as 16. Um, but it really depends on the design too and there's so many different designs in this category that it could really be all over the place uh, just to give you a basic layout of a cassegrain and its hardware you have the primary cell on the back the focuser is generally a little knob on the back because it moves the mirror on certain designs like i said we could do a whole topic on Cassegrains because there's so many different ways to do it. Some of them have a rear focuser just like the refractor did in the in the beginning of the presentation. But a lot of the production ones that you see, like our Maxitovs or, or Skymax series, they have a, a little knob on the back and they move the focuser inside. Um, so do a lot of the Celestron and Mead and there's so many different ones. They have very similar designs. Uh, you have the finder scope, of course. Uh, the dovetail. Sometimes you'll have rings as well. It just depends on the manufacturing. And the front corrector is in its own cell in the front. Uh, now, there's a lot of different designs. And the first one, the one we probably see the most, is the Schmidt Cassegrain. And the Schmidt Cassegrain has a, a lens in the front known as a Schmidt corrector. Uh, the light then bounces onto a spherical mirror in the back. So the curve on that is a spherical uh, figure up to another spherical mirror and then out the back. And this is the Cassegrain focus because there's actually a hole drilled through the middle of the primary mirror for the light to focus through. 
and out the back. And that's kind of the advantage of the Cassegrain design is that you can put all your hardware on the back of the telescope rather than a Newtonian where it's hanging off the side. It's just a little easier to balance and mount when all your equipment is on the back. That's an advantage of a Cassegrain design. It's kind of a folded optical design. So the Schmidt Cassegrain is probably the one you see the most. Uh, Celestron and Mead are really well known for their Schmidt Cassegrains. Um, and most Schmidt Casses come in, you know, about as small as five inch and about as big as 16. Uh, the problem is that Schmidt corrector in the front becomes really difficult to produce in large sizes. So it, it gets, you don't see them as much, uh, much larger than 16. Um, so like we said, uh, composed of primary. Uh, these are generally well corrected, but they can suffer from coma as well. There's some new designs that get rid of the coma by adjusting the design a little bit, like the Celestron Edge HD or the Mead, um, um, sorry, uh, ACF, uh, Advanced Coma Free Design. Um, those are there to adjust for coma and other optical aberrations. And like I said, they're generally from five inch to 16 inch in aperture, and you can get those pretty regularly depending on what you're looking for. Now, the second type of Cassegrain that we see a lot is the Maxitoff Cassegrain. That's very similar to the Schmidt design, but there's differences. So a Mac, uh, and you will be, you'll hear them referred to as Mac for short, M-A-K, uh, uses a thicker meniscus lens in the front. It's a Maxitov corrector and it has a meniscus in the front. So it's it's curved, big curved piece of glass. The light goes through there, hits the Mac uh the primary mirror, which is also spherical, to the secondary mirror, generally spherical, and out the back. And these are Maxitov Cassegrains, just another variation. And we make at Skywatcher, we, we work with Maxitovs a lot with our SkyMax line. We have the 90, the 102, the 127, the 150, and the 180. So three and a half to seven inch. Um, and you can get them bigger than that, but it begin, those Maxitov correctors are really difficult to make because they're very thick pieces of glass. So like I said, Macs are composed of a meniscus corrector at the front, followed by a primary and secondary mirror focusing the light out the back. These are very well-corrected telescopes. They don't have the coma problem that the Schmitts do, uh, but they're also longer focal length as well. Now, with Cassegrains, there's a lot of other designs. Um, and I just want to kind of showcase just some of the the other compound designs. Um, this first one though is not an actual Cassegrain. This is a Maxitoff Newtonian. So a Maxitoff Newtonian has a meniscus in the front, a spherical primary, not a parabolic like a regular Newtonian, and then a, a flat secondary mirror at the front. Uh, Maxitoff Newtonians are kind of a hidden secret. Uh, they address all the major issues that a lot of people want. They, are, they don't have color fringing. They don't have coma. The field is actually flat, so if you're imaging, it's extremely well corrected. Um, if you have a longer focal length one, they generally are very, very good for planets, very high contrast. And the faster ones can be used for photography, like our Sky Mac, or uh, our 190 millimeter Mac Newtonian is awesome if you're doing astrophotography. But they get a bad rap because people hear Newtonian and they don't want to deal with uh, alignment or collimation of the mirrors um, or any of the balancing issues that might come with a Newtonian. So that's why you don't see Mac Newtonians that often. Uh, they're an amazing design. They work very well, but um, most people tend to flock over to a refractor for the simplicity. Uh, the next one is the classical Cassegrain. This is the one that kind of started it all. It has a parabolic primary, a hyperbolic secondary, and is very good um, at the center of the field of view, but does suffer from coma, uh, very much like a Newtonian. It's, you see these a lot um, with planets. Um, if 
you see some of the hardcore planetary or lunar imagers um, or people studying that, they generally like to use the classical Cassegrain because it's a very basic optical design and it's very sharp on the center of the field of view. But as you move out, if you're doing wide field stuff, it will suffer from coma. The next one that we hear a lot about is the Ritchie Cretion or RC for short. Uh, these use hyperbolic primary and secondary mirrors. They're mainly used for astrophotography uh, because they're very well corrected as far as coma goes. They do not have coma, but the hard part about Ritchie Cretions is hyperbolic mirrors are very difficult to work with and figure. Um, you can nail the, the figure pretty well, but they can be difficult to collimate um, and they have a special way of collimating or aligning the mirrors to one another. So, um, and they still need some kind of optic in there to give a flat field for photography or a well-corrected field for photography use. But these are very well popular. These are very popular. The The Hubble Space Telescope it's a, is a Ritchie Cretion design. Um, and there's a lot of professional telescopes that are that are RC designs. And there's some uh, not, too, not too expensive small aperture RCs available on the market from various uh, dealers as well that are pretty popular. I have yet to use one, but uh, RCs can generally be made flat. Uh, the next one is the Dahl Kirkham or DK. Uh, you don't see these too much anymore. Um, they're very similar to a classical Cassegrain. Um, they're easier to produce because the secondary mirror is not hyperbolic. It's elliptical, so it's not as complex. And that's something that um, can be helpful for lunar and planetary work as well. Uh, Takahashi made uh, the Dahl Kirkham design. They didn't make it. Um, their Mulan series uh, is a Dahl Kirkham design. Uh, they've since changed it a little bit. Uh, a new design that a lot of us are familiar with from Celestron is called the Roe Ackerman Schmidt astrograph or the Rasa. Uh, the Rasa kind of bridges along the Schmidt Cassegrain family. It does use, uh, I forgot to put it in here, but it does use a Schmidt corrector at the front spherical mirror at the back and then fires all that light back up to the front to the camera through a set of corrective lenses these cannot be used for visual use at all these are photographic only and they're very very fast f2 f22 depending on the model um incredible for imaging purposes but that's a, a newer schmidt design is excuse me is the is the rasa um so if you're into astrophotography that's something to think about too. The last one in here I wanted to cover is a very complex design and you do see these from time to time. It's called a Riccardi Honders. Uh, these are, these have everything in the kitchen sink inside of them. First we have a corrector lens at the front and then at the rear we have what's called a Mangan mirror. And the Mangan mirrors are really interesting because normally on an astro, um, astronomical telescope, the, the reflective surface is on the front surface of the mirror. This is called a first surface uh, mirror. On a Mangan mirror, the reflective surface is on the back. So the light has to travel all the way through the glass, hit the reflectivity surface on the back, and then back through the, the rest of the glass. And this is a really interesting assembly because it's refracting or bending and reflecting at the same time. Um, that is then shot back up to a large secondary mirror and then back through a set of correcting elements in the back. These are incredibly well corrected um, for large format cameras. They're not really for visual use. There's not many manufacturers making them because they are complex and they can be really expensive. Um, the 8-inch model that I'm aware of is probably somewhere in the seven to $8,000 uh, ballpark but they're very compact and all the stuff hangs off the back so there's nothing in the front um, but that all comes at a cost so that is the Riccardi Honders design um, so some advantages of the Cassegrains is generally really compact for their size so like a, an 8 inch Schmidt Cassegrain is you know less than two feet long really small really tiny but you're getting a lot of aperture 
Uh, you have a wide focusing range, so you can use all kinds of accessories on them and cameras without really needing to do a whole lot. Um, and like I said, they're easy to transport because they're generally compact. Uh, the optics on these, um, a wide selection of apertures, generally somewhere from you know three and a half inch to 16, roughly. Um, so many configurations that we didn't even cover. Um, so it's really sky's the limit. And these are good for photographic and visual, and it just depends on what you're looking to get out of it. Uh, some of the disadvantages, however, is they can be really heavy because they have all that glass in them, the big correctors in the front. Um, on the ones that have moving primaries, like a Mac or a Schmidt, um, you can get what's known as focus shift or image shift. So when, you, when the mirror is moving, um, since it is physically moving forward and back to focus, it can move the image too. So that can be annoying. Um, and they can be difficult to cool down or acclimate outside to get the best images because they have so much glass. This is true with the Maxitoff Cassegrains um, or any Maxitoff design is they can be hard to cool down because the corrector is so thick. So they do eventually do uh, cool down. You give them like an hour, they'll be good to go, but they take a little longer than a standard uh, other designs. Um, certain models can be difficult to collimate, like the, the Richie Cretions with their hyperbolic mirrors. Those can be difficult. Um, they're generally slower focal lengths depending on the design we're talking about. So that's the major designs available out there right now. So if you're looking at a telescope right now, when people call in and they're looking for their first telescope or they're considering maybe another one, um, I try to ask them what their goals are. What do you want to do? Do you want to do visual? Do you want to do photographic? Do you want to do both? Um, you really want to decide if photography is going to be a thing that you're going to be interested in moving forward because it makes it a lot easier to uh, make the, the purchase that you're looking to do. And you can buy smarter by understanding what your overall goal is. And another thing that you want to talk about is what's going to work for you um, if you, do you live in a home? Do you have a backyard? Do you live in an apartment? Um, do you have to travel to go use your telescope? Can you use it at home? Um, if you're in the middle of a city, you're probably not going to go buy a 20 inch telescope because you might not be able to use it. If you have the ability to take it out or you live in dark skies or can get to dark skies, then a 20 inch might be something to consider. Um, so all these things play a role because you want you want to use the telescope and you don't want it to just sit there and collect dust. So before you make your purchase, ask yourself some things like where do you plan to use it? What do you want to use it for? Maybe what are your observing interests? Do you like planets? Do you like deep sky? Do you like the moon? And there's a lot of stuff that will overlap, but it's it makes it easier to make a smart purchase for your telescope if you just ask yourself some basic questions on what you want to get out of it. And then from there, you can, you can really uh, do a lot better for yourself. So with that, I, I hope that was informative. I know it was basically, we blew through that hour really, really quickly. But I hope this was informative uh, for anybody. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to, to answer any of those right now. Um, but uh, let's see, Elisa, how does collimation hold if the primary is moving? That's actually a really good question. So um, I can't speak to how other manufacturers do it, um, but like for our Maxitoff telescopes, where it has a moving primary, the primary and the focusing assembly sit on a, a pivoting plate. So the whole primary and focusing assembly are actually move together. And that's how we can actually align the that whole assembly gets aligned. Um, generally, when the primary is moving on these telescopes, they have what's known as a baffle tube. There's a tube that comes out from the center of the mirror, um, and it rides on that baffle tube. And as long as the baffle 
is square or mounted correctly to the telescope, then it maintains that alignment uh, moving forward. So that's that's generally how collimation is done on uh, a telescope like that. So um, that's something to think about. Uh, Jonathan, an astrophysics 7-inch Starfire refractor, it wasn't that great. That's actually really surprising. Um, so I'm not sure what was up with that, but that's really surprising. Uh, want to know more about your Esprit 150 at some point, please. Um, so for those of you who um, know we make our Esprit refractors, those are triplet refractors. Um, we'll probably do a video on that series uh, coming up and explain more detail of that. So we'll get into that in the near future. But those are kind of our high-end imaging models, um, which is actually displayed on the screen here on the right. That's the Esprit 120, um, 120 millimeter diameter aperture, F7 focal length, uh, F ratio, um, really designed for astrophotography. Um, but we'll do a video on the Esprits um, coming forward. Uh, Ken, do you have any concern yourself with the back focus when mating a DSLR to a Maxitoff Cassegrain? Normally, no. Um, because the Maxitoff Cassegrain has a moving primary and has a lot of uh, back focus space, um, you should be able to mount your camera on the back and get it to come to focus without any additional optics needed. So just make sure you have the right adapters and mount that to the back of it, the visual back, where you can put everything on the back there, and you should be good to go um, without any additional things. Now, if you want to throw like a Barlow or something in there to adjust the magnification, things might change. Um, but if you just want to use the telescope and your DSLR, um, you don't need to worry about back focus. That's the beauty about the Maxitoff design is it doesn't need a field flattener and there's no real back focus problems because everything is corrected. So wherever the telescope comes to focus is corrected. There's no additional optics needed. So the Mac designs are really, really sweet. Michael, what is the best telescope choice to use for visual? And photography, reflector, refractor, or Cassegrains. Um, so if you want one that works really well for both, I'd probably say a refractor. Probably like a 120, 130 millimeter aperture refractor is kind of the best of everything because you're getting five inches of aperture roughly. They're not too big to move around. They're fairly lightweight. But a refractor is so easy to work with for astrophotography that that's kind of the Swiss Army knife of telescopes personally. Is if you could get like a four to five inch refractor, um, you're not going to have the aperture to really do the deep sky stuff if that's your interest. But um, having having that refractor is going to make it a lot easier. Um, you're using, the, oh, Ken, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll get to Ken in just a second. So uh, back to Michael really quick. Uh, I would recommend a refractor. A refractor would be much easier to use for everything. Um, generally, we all end up getting another telescope. So ideally, I'd probably get a refractor for photography and a Dobsonian or a Schmidt-Cassegrain for visual use. That's kind of what I would do. So while the refractor is busy shooting your pictures, you can go off and gallivant around the sky um, with another telescope that's maybe got some more aperture. Uh, Ken, I'm using teleconverters. So back onto the Maxitoff. Um, that was gonna that might get really really difficult using teleconverters. You could play with it. It's gonna be something you're gonna have to uh, experiment with yourself. Uh, if you guys have any more questions, um, we're out of time today, but you can always email us at support at skywatcherusa.com. Just title it "What's Up" and uh, ask anything you like. Uh, we'll be happy to answer any of your questions, um, especially if you have stuff that might not pertain to the topic today. Um, just shoot us an email and we'll, we'll be happy to answer those questions for you. So I really hope that you had a good time today. Um, we'll hopefully see you guys next week. Uh, next week's topic, we're going to talk about uh, eyepieces 
and how we can incorporate those into the telescope and the different types of designs and what the advantages are for that. So that is next week's topic is eyepiece basics. So that is Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific here on the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. And thank you once again for joining us at the What's Up webcast. And again, if I missed any uh, questions, please just email that to support at skywatcherusa.com and we can get that answered for you in detail. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a great weekend and definitely be safe.